0: Support for this episode comes from Yakima Chief Hops. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% farmer-owned hop supplier with a mission to connect the family farms of the Pacific Northwest with brewers across the globe. With a growing competitive market, YCH understands the need to continuously brew exceptional quality beers. This is why YCH is focused on developing innovative hop products and research-based resources that provide real solutions in the brew house and help brewers take their beers to the next level. Yakima Chief Hops works with breweries of all sizes across the globe, from home and nano brewers to craft and macro. To find out more about YCH, visit www.yakimachief.com. Hello, and welcome to the Brewer's Journal podcast. My name is Tim Sheehan, editor of the Brewer's Journal. Earlier this week, we hosted our annual Brewer's Congress and Brewer's Choice Awards. So please forgive my coarse voice in this particular introduction. The event brought together more than 400 individuals from across the diverse spectrum of beer. So a massive thank you to everybody that took part and that helped make it possible. During our Brewer's Choice Awards, we gave out the inaugural Global Ambassador Award. This accolade is designed to acknowledge a true catalyst of innovation and invention in the wonderful world of beer. And the inaugural winner is just that. He is a brewmaster at a venerable brewery, a decorated author, and the host of countless beer tastings and dinners across the globe. And more recently, he is the founding board chair of the Michael Jackson Foundation for Brewing and Distilling. He is, of course, Garrett Oliver. So to celebrate the award, we are giving you another opportunity to listen back to his excellent keynote talk at our Pruis Congress in 2018. I hope you enjoy it.
1: So, the first thing you need to realize is that I am 400 years old. (laughs) I have crossed oceans of time to be with you. I was here, I think, about 200 years back. I like what you've done with the place. Kind of wonder where you get the money from. I heard something about colonies. <laughs> Could be really a useful thing to have colonies. Now, you know, I travel a lot these days, which is a, a great thing. Um, I lived here from 1983 uh, to 84. Um, I ran University of London Union, which is a concert hall in Good Street. I put on Billy Bragg, Cocteau Twins. I took the Ramones Bowling. (laughs) I put on REM as the opening band for the beat. (laughs) So so feel like, he really is 400 years old. (laughs) And so, you know, I was asked to give a talk here, and, you know, and I wanted to give a technical talk, but you know, we each have twenty minutes, and you know, uh, uh, being an American, I'm long-winded, uh, and I can't get any technical talk out in in twenty minutes. So, if you. Uh, I have a really cool presentation on bottle conditioning that you can, if, if you're really interested in bottle conditioning, you can send me an email and I will send it to you as a, uh, you know, as, as a handout or something. What I'm going to talk about today then is a little bit uh, more wild and woolly and uh, and philosophical. It's a little bit more about ways of of thinking and of approaching what it is that we do every day. As uh, so I said, I travel a lot, so I'm just back from Sweden, Norway, Finland, Japan, Hong Kong, and, uh, I was here this summer, and then France, and, uh, and now here I am back again. Um, you see a lot of things, you know, everywhere that you go these days, and in, in the old days it was fascinating, because you travel as an American brewer, uh, and I would come over here and I'd say, hey, you know, you know we're Americans were very friendly, I'm, I'm a brewer from the United States, and they'd just say, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Must be very difficult. I've heard of your American beer, <laughs> and uh, just open derision. People really not—they didn't even pretend to have any respect for what we were doing, and I didn't quite understand it, you know, until later on. But here's the thing to realize, and you know, his comments really uh, go to that to a certain point. Is that we used to have everything, everything. We had everything. That's the thing about New York City. Um, which is really different uh, uh, than London. When I moved to London, London was a British city. I remember going to the first time going to the supermarket, and if I thought the American supermarket was a horror show, oh my God! <laughs> I, I didn't know it was possible for meat to have a green sheen on it. You know, and when I got to the, you know, it's like breakfast sausages it says uh, not more than forty-five percent rusk. I was like, what is rusk? I thought sausages were made of meat. <laughs> apparently not, you know, and th- you, you've improved greatly <laughs> over, over time, but the thing that you had was the beer, but we used to have everything. Um, as he was pointing out, if you did not like the food from where your people were from, say your people were from Campania in Italy, and you were tired of Campania food, all you had to do was walk a mile that way, and in 20 minutes you were in a different country where they spoke another language and they had completely different food. We had everybody from everywhere, and we had everybody's beer from everywhere. So one of we sold so much Guinness in New York City that they built a Gibbs brewery out on Long Island in the 1940s. Um, we were the top market for a great many European breweries. Of course, we had all of our own stuff. There was so much IPA being brewed in New York City. There was a New York Burtonizing company that existed just to sell brewing salts to pale ale and IPA brewers. Uh, We had huge numbers of German immigrants. The area where Brooklyn Brewery is was uh, 100% German-speaking. The area where the brewery is now was called Brewer's Row, and there was one uh, brewery after another. And by the 1890s, uh, 1880s, 15% of all the beer in the United States was made in Brooklyn. It was one of the great brewing capitals of the world. And so you you kind of wonder, well, what happened? Because something obviously happened. And the thing that happened, interestingly enough, is, uh, well, first you had Prohibition. Uh, Prohibition, of course, wiped out the brewing industry uh, and all alcoholic production. But more than that, 1920 to 1933, that was Prohibition. Now, the difference between 1920 and 1933 is rather like the difference between 1990 and 2003. In between those dates, more recently, you had the Internet. Between uh, 1920 and 1933, you basically had railroads, uh, you had cars. I mean, you had railroads before, but much more efficient. You had cars, trucks, roads to put the trucks on, radio networks, and the ability to sell one thing to everybody. And what people said is, if we could make people forget what everything used to taste like, we could provide them with one version of each thing. And then once we do that, we can sell it to them with huge amounts of advertising over our new networks. We can deliver that one product over our new networks. And by doing that, we can collect all the money. Not some of the money, all the money. That was the idea of American capitalism. Uh, you may have heard of it. <laughs> uh, and it remains, in a way, the idea of American capitalism. And we descended into what I refer to as the Matrix, which is where I grew up. You know, it was a world in which everything that you looked at and consumed was, in fact, a lie. When you went to the supermarket, all you saw was lies. The bread that I grew up with, now, you had different ones here. You had, you know, what was it, King's Mill, uh, uh, breads like that. We had Wonder Bread. But they were all made by a process called the Chorleywood process, and you can kind of look it up. So a loaf of bread that used to be made from four ingredients, each of which can be pronounced by a five-year-old child, was now being made from 50 ingredients, most of which were chemicals. This thing could be knocked out in an hour or two. But it didn't look like bread. It didn't taste like bread. It didn't smell like bread. It didn't act like bread. You can't roll bread into a marble and flick it across the room. Bread does not stick to the roof of your mouth. It actually had no bread attributes. What it was was a bread facsimile. It was a thing that they invented to replace actual bread. It stayed fresh in a bag for two weeks. Even though somewhere in our hearts, we knew that a loaf of bread went off in a day. But the thing is that life was a problem. Cheese is a problem. Bread is a problem. You've heard the you know the the, the the phrase. This is the best thing since sliced bread. What do you think that means? You know they solved problems that people had. People were poor. You couldn't have two heels to a piece of bread. You got to get four kids out the door, and you got to slice this thing up and whatever else is going to go off in a day. And so you ended up with a facsimile, and they did this to everything. Uh, you've heard of American cheese. You know the stuff that comes between two pieces of plastic. What people don't realize, it's stuff that you melt on the American hamburgers. The stuff between the two pieces of plastic is itself plastic. That, unfortunately, is not a joke. You can look it up. The first edible plastic was Crisco. I'm sorry if you have some at home in your fridge. You don't have to put it in the fridge. You know that, right? Nothing will ever. If you've ever seen that cheese, you know you can put it in your pocket and walk around with it for a month, and then take it out and (laughs) eat it. Right? I mean, that is not. actually not a joke. You know, it actually is plastic. And they did the same thing to beer. And they said, you know, we had every beer in the world, and if we can make you forget what beer actually looks like, tastes like, smells like, what it's made from, everything, and we can replace it with a facsimile of beer then we can get all the money. And they did it. You know, and we let them. Now that you have the internet, that genie, you know, is harder to put back in the bottle. It's very hard to get people to, to eat only three cheeses. When I first got to Paris, I went to a cheese shop. I never heard of a cheese shop. I went to a cheese shop, and I said, what is that smell? It is the fromage, monsieur. And I said, I've had all three cheeses. None of them smell like that. You know, <laughs> You ever wonder why that American slice is yellow? I mean, we could get all the way into this. Th- that slice is yellow because people knew in the old days that when cheese aged, it turned yellow, a natural reaction. It became deeper. It became more flavorful. And that uh, uh, was more valuable. So then they started to add a coloring, food coloring, annatto, to cheeses to make them look older, the same way that people add uh, caramel coloring to things to make them look like they were in a barrel. Coca-Cola is supposed to look like it's in a barrel. But we don't remember any of this stuff anymore. And then you end up with a piece of plastic cheese that is yellow because another fake cheese was colored yellow to actually mimic a real cheese that was old three or four generations back. That's the matrix, you know, and that's the thing that we grew up in. So I came to, to England in 1983 and I discovered this stuff called beer. Now I thought that the stuff that I was drinking every single day in college was beer. And I found out when I got here that I'd been lied to. (laughs) And And the actual thing was, we didn't like beer. We didn't like it. We acted like we liked it. We didn't like it. I'll tell you the truth. We drank Budweiser when we had money. If we had any money, we never had any money, but if we had a little bit of money, we drank Budweiser because at least it tasted like water. You know, the other stuff that we could get tasted much, much, much worse than water. And it was only when I got here that I discovered that, you know, beer could be a real thing. Now, over the years, I've had the opportunity to judge the great British beer festival. Um, I've sat uh, judging seven times. I've sat final panel for Champion Beer of Britain four times. So, you know, I know my cask beer. Um, but it's fascinating to go around the world now and hear people talk about, you know, what craft is and what craft isn't. I was here in 1993, I believe it was 93, you'll have to help me out here if I get that that date wrong, 91, 92, 93, somewhere there. There was an IPA conference held um, in the Whitbread Porter Ton Room uh, by the British Guild of Beer Writers on the IPA beer style. The IPA beer style at the time was a historical British style that nobody brewed anywhere. Maybe Young's did. (laughs) Sort of. Special under now. I'm going I'm to make an argument for it. Uh, now it seems to be a modern American style that everybody brews, but we're no longer sure what it means. So here is a question for you, you know, uh, as we get through it. Well, or a statement first. Craft beer is not a trend. It's not a fad. What it is is a return to normality. This is the normal, that we're getting back to normal. And the things that we do are not new. Uh, I hate to tell you this, but you're not a genius. <laughs> I'm not a genius. There are no geniuses in this room. There's nothing. We were the first brewery in the world to do collaborations. The British Guild of Beer Writers have told me that. I have decided that it's true. Uh, <laughs> if, if, you have, if you have anything to say to the contrary, just roll right up and tell me. But apparently that was the thing that we invented back in 1996. Uh, We had done six with other breweries before anybody else in the world had done a single one. Uh, 400 years. (laughs) But do I really think that in 20,000 years of brewing, nobody ever got together and made a beer before? That's ridiculous. So, I mean, what we're in the middle of is a return to normality, and the normality is beautiful. When I showed up here with a 7% IPA, about 60 IBUs, heavily dry hopped, The British brewers said, well, that's very funny, but no one's ever going to drink that. And now it's back. But what was I brewing? 1840-style IPA, you know, in a day when IPA was a 3.5% beer with no hop aroma in the UK and didn't mean anything uh, in the United States. Here's a question I think that you need to ask yourself as you go about the things that you do every day. Never mind what craft is and what it isn't. I have, a, I have an opinion, you have an opinion, we all have an opinion. The real question is, what is your religion? What is your religion? What is the thing that made you leave whatever it is you intended to do and come do this harder thing in which it's going to be a lot harder to make money and put shoes on the kids you know, and keep your, your car and your house and all the stuff you always want. What is your religion? What are you willing to do And what are you not willing to do? And we all have a religion. We don't think of it as a religion, but you can't defend your actual feelings about the stuff that you're saying, well, I don't use extracts, I don't use oils. I use pellets, the next guy only uses whole hops. I talk to some people and they're like, enzymes are fine, enzymes are not fine. And we can argue about it. you know. But really, what it comes down to is your personal feelings about what makes you feel like you are the kind of brewer you've always wanted to be. So if you don't have a religion, then you can't be a craft brewer. I'm 400 years old. We invented this shit. So I'm telling you, if you don't have a religion, you can't be a craft brewer. You need to know somewhere in your heart. Now your religion can change. It can change. Actual religions, people evolve over the course of their lives. You know, you might decide, oh, I'm going to do this. But when I meet a guy who's like, oh, we put our, you know, we decide to put a bunch of donuts in our beer. It's like, okay, do what you like. But do you know what's in the donuts? Well, no. Well, do you know what the donuts are full of preservatives? Is the frosting full of waxes? Um, You know, that stuff when you made your pancake beer, does it have artificial maple flavoring? It's like, well, yeah, but, well, yeah, but. So what is your religion then? What is it that you're here to do? What is it that separates you from them? You know, the them that you came here to basically uh, uh, overthrow or do better than whatever it is that you came to do. Um, it's fascinating religions. I had a stuck fermentation once, and it was a saison. I had people waiting for it. I thought I was I thought I was a genius. I had won a number of medals for Saison. This is the late 90s. Um, and I don't know how many of you know the DuPont yeast and are fermented with it. It has a habit sometimes of stopping suddenly mid-fermentation, just like hitting a wall. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm turning it over, I'm adding other yeast strains, nothing's working. And my and a friend of mine who is a great Saison brewer sent me a little box. With a note, and it said, "Just pour it in." <laughs> and he had sent me a little vial of you know of amylase, and this is, I'm talking about like 1999. And I went into the lab, and you know I added to an Erlenmeyer flask, and lo and behold, within hours the fermentation started again. And I was like, I don't know. And I will tell you right here and now, I can say what I want about religion, but if as hard as we were working. If my team, if I didn't know that my that my team would know if they came in, in the morning and that fermentation was rocking and rolling, they'd know that I had poured it in. And if there had been nobody to watch me, I would have poured it in. It was <laughs> it was against my religion. Now, eventually we borrowed some other yeast strains from some other brewers and we worked that stuff through. And in the end, at the Great American Beer Festival, we won the gold medal for Saison and the guy who had sent me the amylase won the silver. Uh, I felt good about that, but, you know, I only just got away, you know, and we all only just get away, you know, on a day-to-day basis. Um, So before you point fingers at people, you know, look around your place, you know, and decide who you are and who you want to be, because really that's that's your God. That's the thing that you serve every day. You've got to look yourself in the mirror and try to be, the, the brewer that you want to be. Uh, somebody a lot smarter than me once said that success is becoming the person that you always claim to be in public. I can barely see the person I've been claiming to be in public for 20 years. Like, like, I can see it somewhere in the distance. Eventually, I'm actually going to arrive just before I die, you know, you know, as the brewer person, et cetera, that Garrett Oliver claimed to be for 400 years. But to me, that's, you know, that journey, you know, is the, is the success. Um, if you don't care about quality, you cannot be a craft brewer. You know, people go out every day, they work hard for money. You know, that's the thing that separates us from home brewers, is money. You know, and, and money changes everything. You know, if you do not have respect for the time that somebody put in at a job, a job they might not even like, so they could buy your can of beer, then you are you you are not a good person, you know, and you're not a craft brewer. You know, your name on that can has to mean something. So hopefully, while we're here during this thing, we can learn to try to become the brewers that we're claiming to be on a day-to-day basis. But I just want to say a couple of things. We can argue about this later, you know, about nomenclature. Um, and this is one that I do get on a high horse about, uh, the meaning of style. Uh, Michael Jackson, the beer writer and a good friend of many of us, actually invented style as a concept. He didn't invent beer styles. Obviously, vice beer existed long before there was Michael Jackson, but the concept of a nomenclature, a structure, a taxonomy of beer uh, was actually invented by him in the 70s, you know, so that we would have a way of speaking. I will put to you that if craft beer does not have style as a concept and does not have nomenclature, then you give up your entire history, you give up all your stories, and in the end, you have nothing. Ten years ago, I could tell somebody the story of IPA, what IPA was, what it tasted like, why it tasted that way, everything about it. The French know a lot about that. If you go into any Western kitchen, any good Western kitchen anywhere in the world, you can ask a chef, make me a hollandaise sauce. It means one thing, only one thing. That's power. Power. That is the stuff that we might want to think about holding on to. Because once you let that power go, you can never get it back. And if you don't think that's true, go try to explain to a newbie today what IPA is. Think about it. What is it? Anything with a hop aroma? So, when you now have to explain, which also involves selling your beer to people, you have to explain your beer to people. Are you going to do this as an individual? Each beer you make is simply an individual beer with no history, no background, no culture behind it. Who is going to value that? There's a reason why champagne is more expensive than other sparkling wines, and it's not because it's better. It's because there's never going to be red champagne. You know, it means one thing. So when we talk about style, it is not a stricture. If you have a new type of beer, you know what you could do. You creative people. You could make up your own name. We did it in Germany. I made, together with Schneider, uh, a beer that was 8%, 60 IBUs, heavily dry hop, fermented with uh, with Weiss beer yeast, and rather than call it Weiss IPA, which would have sold better, I made up a name, Hopfenweisse. You could basically understand what it means, and now there are at least six or seven uh, breweries in Germany that make Hopfenweisse, which they don't realize is actually a trademark of Brooklyn Brewery, and I'm not going to you know, I'm not going to pursue it because I think it's really cool that people in Germany are making Hopfenweisse. So my last question to you then is in 200 years you know the names of Anton Dreher you know so many great brewers down you know down the ages who's going to remember you and why are they going to remember you you might not care now and you might not care later but if there's no reason why anybody you know would remember you why are you here so let's go out and do some really cool stuff uh, and all try to become the brewers that we claim to be when we go out in public every day. I hope one day I'm going to get there. Hopefully, this conference helps you get there. My comments have gone red. (laughs) Thanks so much.